Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And I'm Ruth. Welcome to the journey to transformation. We are in a very <laughs> cool location today. We are on the seaside in Bournemouth. Yay! We're looking out over some beautiful scenery. We've got the ocean, beautiful grass, bushes, <laughs> <dogs>. joggers. <laughs> joggers. And, and we also have me. <laughs> so we are joined by Ruth Dawson, pronouns she, her. She's worked for Amnesty International UK for over 20 years. Currently their campaign strategy and evaluation manager. She sits in the nexus between learning what worked or didn't work and strategizing for future priority campaigns. She previously worked as a campaigner in Amnesty International UK's Individuals at Risk and Human Rights Defenders programs. She also retains a focus on ethical responsibilities. Wow. Ruth. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Thank you. And welcome to lovely Bournemouth. <laughs> Thank you for having us. All right. Shall I say, I mean, in the interest of full disclosure, we should probably just let everybody know that Ruth is here because she's our favorite person. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we <laughs> say that to all the guests. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it was interesting because yesterday we had a call with somebody who is looking to do some collaborative work with us. And they said, okay, so what are you looking for in your ideal client? And Lauren just looked at me and said, I will answer for both of us. And then just described you. And I said, I think it's okay to use her name here. <laughs> so we have been spreading your joy and the joy that you have given us wow. all around. Thank you. I think it's only fair to say the feeling is mutual. This is a joy to get to meet you in person. <laughs> because we haven't met for over a year. Mm. We've only known each other from the top up. So. Exactly. So what you may have heard in previous episodes is we did an evaluation of Amnesty International UK's Brave campaign. And Ruth was our savior, light, joy, <laughs> the reason I got up every day. <laughs> I mean, can I just say the inception plan we received was, whoa, okay, we're ready. I loved it. It was that amazing. That was the moment that I think we knew when we received like such a cool inception plan. Yeah. We were like, yeah, okay, we're in really good hands here. When we opened that email. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it felt. <laughs> I think what they may be trying to say very nicely is that I'm something of a control freak and I overplan. You're in good hands there, though. <laughs> exactly. It became sort of the model with subsequent clients. It was the model. We were like, okay, so what is your plan? Can we see your plan? <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't think anybody's produced one, so that's fine. Yeah. We were like, maybe we should persuade Ruth to go and do some consultancies with other clients to prepare them <laughs> so we can work with them. We're going to have to send a stager to you to get you yeah. ready for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Expect a call. <laughs> Ruth, so why don't you tell us about your journey? To Amnesty, to Bournemouth, to evaluation? Yeah, your journey to evaluation. Where you are now mm. with Amnesty, how did you get there? Tell us everything. So as you said in the intro, I've worked at Amnesty UK for over 20 years, I think 21 years now. But for most of that time, I worked as a campaigner. So I think when we were talking about the brief for this podcast episode, you were talking, Lauren, about how a lot of content out there on evaluation, it tends to be quite technical focused. And what you were keen to explore here was something different to that, which really suits me because I don't have technical monitoring and evaluation expertise. That's not my 
background. So I've worked in a number of different jobs at Amnesty UK over that time. So I started in what was then the Youth and Student Office, working with young activists on a competition around our Stop Torture campaign. And then I've done a number of roles, but for a lot of the time I worked as a campaigner, as you said, in our Individuals at Risk and Human Rights Defenders programme. So developing and delivering campaigns with and for people who are really on the front line of the human rights abuses that we're tackling together. And then through a series of sort of moves and internal restructures, I came into the role that I'm doing now about five years ago, five or six years ago, I think, which was created as a new role in the campaigns team at Amnesty UK. So the title now, it's, it's changed over a few years, but it's campaign strategy and evaluation manager. And what that means is that now I don't do campaigning myself, but I'm much more behind the scenes and supporting colleagues who are leading those public facing campaigns in the development of the strategies for those campaigns. So really helping to create the space and guidance on how to think through campaigns to be as effective as possible and to then also monitor and evaluate those campaigns so that we know whether we are being effective, how effective we're being, what kind of impact we're having, and then to try to feed that learning into future campaigns. But I'm coming at that very much as somebody who's got experience in campaigning, but not so much in the actual technical monitoring and evaluation. So it's more a curiosity, I guess, like as a campaigner, I was always very keen that what I was doing was effective. And I guess I've always been someone that's asked questions. And I like to sort of describe my job now as I have the luxury of being paid to ask the awkward questions <laughs> and the luxury of people being very kind in quite welcoming of that as well. Yeah, no, I mean, you're in the same company in terms of asking <laughs> the awkward questions. What, us making things awkward? <laughs> no. <laughs> And I mean, the stakeholders, the rights holders you work with and campaigns have probably really helped you come into the evaluation space because you're thinking from the perspective of this is how we work with them in campaigns. So how do we then build them into evaluation, understanding what's effective, right? Definitely. As you were saying, I've also got kind of a little bit of a focus within my role on ethical responsibilities to, we use the term rights holders for people who are experiencing or facing human rights violations and whose lives our work may impact upon. And particularly having come from the background of working directly with rights holders just my ultimate focus is always what are we achieving together and how are rights holders involved and is this effective for them and is this having a positive impact or a negative impact and that also being very important to as you say bring into that evaluation space so it's not just about what we think in evaluation in terms of what's working and what's not working it's really really important that we validate or challenge that with the people outside of Amnesty who we are either trying to affect change through or most importantly affect change with and for. Yeah, absolutely. So let's pick up a little bit on how you bring these stakeholders and rights holders into the evaluation space. So from experience with you, you're working with people who've experienced trauma or human rights violations, as you say. So what's the first step in saying, please come and work in this evaluation with us or a partner, for example? How do you do that? So I think that was one of the more unique things about this evaluation. I guess one thing to say is that this is only the evaluation that we worked on together was only the second external evaluation that I've project managed in this role. So I've done some sort of internal evaluations, but there's really big evaluation of a priority campaign, which we always want to be done independently. This is only the second time that I've done that. And it's actually the first time in an external evaluation that I've been project managing that we have really engaged rights holders. So the previous evaluation that was external that I was managing, we had a plan to be engaging rights holders and have put quite a lot of conversation with partner 
organisations into how to go about that appropriately and safely. And then COVID happened and it really just became too difficult to do that in a way that was adequately supported. So yeah, it was very regretful, but we weren't able to engage rights holders in that evaluation because we couldn't find a way that was safe and appropriate to do that at that time. So this time we have had more time to work out how we work in a COVID environment and make sure that we were able to build rights holder participation into the evaluation. But it was definitely something that was a steep learning curve for us and and we really had to think through. So we needed to think about which human rights defenders had participated in the campaign, whose input we wanted to the evaluation. And then the people who had the close relationships with them and trusted relationships with them from Amnesty needed to be in touch with them to ask if they would be willing to input. And of course, that meant kind of the three of us working out exactly what it was that we were asking them to participate in. So a lot of thought had to go into what was going to be asked, where that information would appear, how it would appear, what the options would be for people about how they were or weren't represented, whether they would have the chance to check that and how they were represented. Also things around, was it actually safe to conduct an evaluation conversation? What platform would be safe to use that for timeframes that worked for people, allowing some reflection time, all things that we needed to think about. And I think that was really a key learning for us was that we hadn't really built in enough time to the evaluation timetable to quite think all of that through so all of that work in developing like the the preamble that went out to people to explain this is what we are asking you to participate in and this is what it's about the questions the risk assessment that needed to be conducted I think that all needed a bit more time than we had allowed for it so that was definitely a learning point for us but was it really important that we did put time into and adjust the time frame to make sure that we could do that it's a really uncomfortable tension of what you can do within the capacity and wanting to bring people rights holders, participants, beneficiaries into that space. Because we recently were working on a project and it was interviewing, doing in-person data collection in three countries in a conflict-affected context with children and other young people. And time had gone by and I said, you know, I'm just a little bit worried that we don't have the things in place that make this ethical or safe. And then nothing, 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 nothing. And I was like, okay, so just checking back again, I'm going to pull this component of the project, which I think is a hard thing as a consultant to do because we all want to travel and like do fun stuff. But to pull that component of the project because the clients hadn't really thought through all of the pieces of what it would mean to have people engaging. And this was a learning review. There was no evaluation component to it, but it was about learning and taking people's thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. about what was happening around them. And I think sometimes in that pursuit of, you know, we really want to hear from the people who we work with and work for, but recognizing unless that internal piece is really stable, it's just not ethical, it's not safe, and it may ultimately just be an extractive piece of work. So I think Mm -hmm. it's really good to take that time and recognize what the limitations look like for the organization and then come at it again. Yeah, definitely. I've just got so many things you were saying then, Ruth. When do you engage the stakeholders in an enzyme evaluation? At what point do you say this is coming? Is it five months before? Is it a month before? Is it a year before? And I haven't really seen seen so much. Your pool of stakeholders tends to be the same throughout a campaign or a project or a development project. But I've rarely seen at the beginning of that people being frank with their stakeholders and saying, look, we need to do this evaluation and this evaluation. I'm going to talk to you here probably in a year again, and maybe again in three years. Kind of a heads up, Mm -hmm. like this is the amount of time we may need to come and talk to you. This is the frequency. There's no expectation. But FYI, you're with me as an equal stakeholder. Here's my planning. What you know, 
that kind mm. of relationship. And also when you were talking about not doing it during COVID-19, there is such a huge commitment and I think value-driven decision in saying this is going to be tokenistic, mm. this is going to be not meaningful, therefore we're not going to do it at all. And I remember mm. you saying that to us right at the beginning of the evaluation we were working with you when we were talking about the inclusion of human rights defenders and in what capacity. Mm. Your line was very much, oh, we don't want it to be tokenistic. We've considered it before and it doesn't feel right. And that for us was a real representation of the values. And I think for us, there was an alignment there. So I think that's the really interesting point to pick up on. Because I think what you were just saying about the life cycle of a campaign and, and giving stakeholders, rights holders, partners a heads up at the beginning of that. I'm not going to pretend that that's something that we do. We also haven't done it in that kind of the systematic way. But I think what you were talking about there is, again, one of those learning points and reflection from this evaluation is it was specifically to do with the steering group. So for this evaluation, as with all external evaluations, we have a steering group, which is an internal steering group made up of leadership team level staff, mostly, who work with me to define what the terms of reference for the evaluation are and then to see that through. And so prior to obviously recruiting you and setting those terms of reference, we were establishing that steering group and invited a relatively new colleague with responsibility for diversity and inclusion to be part of that steering group. And he made a really good challenge in that process and saying, well, where are the rights holders? Where are the human rights defenders in this steering group? The people most affected, why are they not steering this evaluation? So that was when we had that really important conversation. And I think that was our feeling then was that with the relationships that we had with human rights defenders and the way that we have worked with them through the campaign, it would actually feel a bit tokenistic and extractive to ask them to come on to a steering group when we hadn't worked with them in quite that collaborative, participatory, equal partnership type way right the way through. So I think an ambition for the future and definitely something that's pointed to in your evaluation is that we should be doing that from a much earlier stage and we should be finding ways for rights holders and partners to be working in that much deeper participatory way to actually set the campaign strategy and what it is that we're monitoring and evaluating all the way through and to be part of that so that we are having those conversations about what we're trying to achieve and then how we're going to check on that and what are we going to check and when and what's your part in that going to be. But that wasn't where we were at that time and it would have felt tokenistic to include at that point I think yeah and I think that's a real acknowledgement of the journey you're going on right you've taken one step in this evaluation and then next and next and next mm. to the point in which hopefully you get to something that's more meaningful for everyone I think that's all I want organizations to be doing is like having these conversations because sometimes we've found ourselves in situations where people will say we'll make a recommendation they'll say well you know if we can't do the whole thing then we're not going to do anything they're obviously not saying that but that's the sentiment <laughs> that comes across whereas actually a lot of what we're saying is have these conversations so where are these voices okay we acknowledge that these voices aren't there but with what we've got now we can't do it in a way that's meaningful that's engaging that's you know mutually beneficial for everyone so we're going to take a step back we're going to reflect on this and then the next one we're going to look at it in a different way and I think that that's all I really want anybody to be doing is having these conversations and recognizing that people may be absent and trying to work towards that but it doesn't necessarily need to be 100% all the time because at the end of the day that may not actually be what your rights holders want and so you need to lay those foundations to see 
what it could look like in a way that's you know, good for everyone and comfortable for everyone. Yeah, definitely. And I think in some ways, and I think we've talked about this, Ruth, before, your role gives you the space or amnesty, the space and the capacity to be able to think and have these conversations and manage the ethics and the involvement of rights holders. And I think that in some cases is, is a bit of a, a luxury. I think in other organizations, it's maybe a project manager who's crazy busy mm. and doesn't have the space either. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. I mean, if there could be a shout out to everyone for a thing that they should do is get yourself a Ruth because (laughs) it's just having a dedicated role, having somebody who's singularly focused on really, really important points about a way a couple of random people interact with your rights holders feels like kind of an important thing to have. Because for a lot of organizations that we work with, we basically just drop in as these unknown quantities and then are just given these lists of people's names that we then kind of reach out to. And sometimes they're like, who are you and what is happening? And we try our best to help organizations manage that. But it's a great role to have. (laughs) It definitely does feel like a luxury. And I'm very aware of the size of organization we are, that we have the resource to be able to invest in that role. But yeah, I do, especially kind of coming from a a campaigner background, I absolutely know what it's like to be a campaigner and juggling all of the doing stuff to tackle the human rights abuses that you're trying to do something about every day. But it's very difficult to create that space to be also doing all of the evaluation and relationship managing and processes and things alongside that so yeah I think what my role can do is really add that capacity to busy campaigners and just help add that capacity and time and prompt things your role and the time that you're able to give to that I think lends itself to trust and acknowledging bias too because sometimes I think we found why are you pointing at me we we (laughs) (laughs) drop into consultancies or projects you know someone quickly goes in collects data and you haven't had time to understand the organization, the power, the trust levels between different stakeholders. But also if you're speaking to rights holders or beneficiaries or communities, you're just going and extracting. You haven't really considered kind of the trust building element, which means that you're going to get more meaningful data or you're going to be able to understand the context better. That also comes from having space and then within that all the biases like if you've only got two months to deliver an evaluation you're jumping in you're extracting information but we all come with our own biases our own assumptions of things and that all takes time to unpack i think that was one of the bits that i really enjoyed about working with you and working with amnesty is just those moments where we were taking a step back and asking each other questions and i remember you i won't go too deep into the methodology but i remember at one point you were like right but we could be actively harming people so where are we going to be able to see if we're doing that whereas most organizations when we're like you are actively causing harm they're like no we're not get out of here what are you talking about but that real push to be looking deeper and being more analytical about the ways not just simply there could be a negligent or absent step back and things happen inadvertently but the ways that it could be actively harming people and if you haven't read the report that wasn't the case but just that option or that challenge to us to be working hard harder to uncover different components of the evaluation that we were looking at and us also being able to ask you and the team very critically, okay, but what's happening here? Why are these people chosen to speak to us? Why are these your evaluation stakeholders? What does all of this mean? And all of that takes time and takes space and careful consideration and thoughtfulness. And Definitely. I think on the first point there, one of the things I really, really like about the definition of impact we have at Amnesty is that I think we often use the word impact meaning 
positive and meaning intended. But actually, our definition, if you read it, is that it encompasses both planned and unplanned, intended and unintended, positive and negative impacts. So it's any outcome that is resulting from your work in any of those spheres. And I think that's really, really important because we don't always know if we are having a negative impact. But I think we have enormous power as an organisation, like Amnesty undoubtedly has power. And I've had enormous privilege through the work that I've done to really witness that and witness the positive impact that Amnesty's support in working with people on the front line of the human rights struggle can have. But I think it's like, you know, it sounds trite to say with great power comes great responsibility. But it's kind of, uh, <laughs> I'm going to do a superhero uh, sound effect in there. But I think we do have to recognise that we can also do enormous damage with that power yeah. as well. And actually yeah. we need to actively look for that so that we can understand all the different impacts that we are having and learn from that so that we can make sure we're having more and more positive impact and really minimising the potential for negative impact. But I don't think we will always know that unless we explicitly ask for it and look for it. Yeah. I was just going to say as well on your point about kind of challenging each other on this sort of stakeholder list. And I think that was really important. So what you were saying, Lauren, as well about the biases and how we select people. I think that's a really key ethical dilemma in evaluations is who decides who we speak to and whose input is part of that. And what we tried to do was to broaden the scope of who produced that stakeholder list that we then presented to you. But then I think what was really important was that you were then able to challenge us and say, where are these voices? Where's this person in this? Or be able to expand that list. And I think, you know what I'm going to say, there was my favourite <laughs> phrase that, 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 you, yeah. that you gave us, <laughs> that you came back with. There was definitely a moment where you were suggesting that there were some stakeholders who should be involved in the evaluation. And our response to that was, it would be great to involve them but they've been asked to do a lot and we're really worried about their time and we don't want them to feel under pressure or to burden them so we think it wouldn't be better to ask them and you very rightly pushed back and challenged us on that and described it as us being well-meaning gatekeepers and explained that to us in what we're doing there is actually we're taking the decision about whether those stakeholders have the opportunity to input or not and what we could do instead would be to reach out to them with an offer which doesn't get followed up which doesn't get chased so if they are too busy if it's not a reasonable thing to ask they can step back but they have the opportunity to input if they want to and then they're taking that decision rather than us and I think that was really really important and I do really like that phrase okay. well, meaning <laughs> it's also been something that's been incredibly helpful to us because it's actually something that other people have picked up and I'm hearing that now in meetings and in spaces and <laughs> ah, yeah, trademark yeah, it, it sticks and it's a real check on us because the, the phrase stuck and it's now when we're having discussions and it helps us to do that step back and reflective thinking because we're saying something and then it's like hang on a minute are we being well-meaning gatekeepers here <laughs> Ah, that's nice to know, isn't it? I do think it is an important bit for us to reflect on because I remember at the time us saying I would make the same choice. I would say, well, I know what they've got going on. I'm the closest person to them. I speak to them all the time. I know what they've got going on. I think that was the benefit of having the dynamic that we did is that I knew that I would make the exact same choice (laughs) that you all made. But whether or not that's the choice that we should be making is the question and being able to have that nice, comfortable conversation about it was great. When somebody asked us what the ideal client would be, part of the characteristics of that was that sort of humility, the absence of any kind of defensiveness. So when we were asking these questions, it all felt very much in the spirit of trying to learn together. Sometimes it can be an uncomfortable dynamic and an uncomfortable tension when you're asking hard questions. Definitely. And there was a sense of learning and evolving together through the evaluation process because of this. And I think for me, I took that as a takeaway of it's not an evaluation 
foundation that you have to stick to all the way through. And if other challenging things come through, then you adapt, you evolve, you create another survey, you speak to these other stakeholders and so on, because that period of time is not just a static evaluation for everyone. It actually operates in a wider context. You're picking up on something that's, I think, now I'm like, ah, oh, that is really important. Is that space to change and adapt? Because I think there were moments where we thought, okay, we'll do it this way. Actually, this might not fit. Let's do it a different way. And I think sometimes when we're working, we find that people say, okay, but you're doing this this and this and this and this is all of the things that you're doing and this is the time frame but when you start interacting with people evaluations are about work that happened impact that happened but at the end of the day they're about people they're about the decisions people made and the ways that those people interacted with other people mm. and that's hard i think if you think oh you're just evaluating work then you're ignoring the fact that work is conducted by humans and hi doggo he's a little dog who's very interested <laughs> in lauren's almond croissant <laughs> hi. we're doing a podcast episode Bye. 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 <laughs> I think that dog drank some of my coffee, so it might be a bit wild. <laughs> Real life outside broadcasting. Folks. Yeah. <laughs> this is why we do it. <laughs> yeah, so just like evaluations, which are in contexts that are a bit changing. So exactly. we're episodes. <laughs> yeah. Just have to adapt. adapt. And we're back. Hi. The dog is back again. The dog is now sucking. <laughs> he really wants that almond press on. <laughs> What were we doing about Where were we? Changing context. Yeah, yeah perfect timing. <laughs> I think just having that space to say, okay, we need to do something different because now what we're doing is interacting with reality and context and people and their yeah. lives. We were wrapping up an evaluation a little bit ago and it was like, well, you have to get this number. You have to hit this number. And we were like, okay, but you know, there's active conflict in this area and that's probably not good for them. It's not safe for us. And I think when we think of evaluations or assessments or learning happening, and it's just this static block thing that you then drop into people's universes, I think that's the hardest when we have a dynamic with clients and with different projects where you have to adapt and you want to and you need to, and there's a lot of space for that. I think those are the ones that generally end up being, they take a lot of time. Time, but it's important to take that time thing. That was really, really important for us as well, that you were able to take that very flexible approach and that you were not just willing to do that, but actively seeing the importance of that. Because I think we were talking earlier about not having left enough time to work through everything that needed to happen to sort of safely and appropriately engage stakeholders. And that was obviously critical that we did that right. And you absolutely understood that. And we're also championing that. And we were able to adapt to make sure that we could get that right, which was really, really important. But then also being able to adapt when you had persuaded us that we were being well-meaning gatekeepers <laughs> and so we were then reaching out to kind of more people than we had intended to and I think that was also really important to kind of allow that like the snowball approach as well so when you were conducting interviews with people that we had recommended and then they were suggesting other people and then that so we had that flexibility and you had that flexibility to build in more interviews but also to change tactics so there was a plan to use interview methodology but then for some of those stakeholder groups actually a survey seemed more appropriate to be respectful of the boundaries of their time and that was still getting useful information 
information even without the space of being able to kind of dig into that so that flexibility I think was really really key I think I also wanted to say something about you mentioned that non-defensiveness of spirit and that working together and learning together and that was definitely a really important part of the evaluation process that we worked on together for me and we were learning together and that was really important but I definitely want to recognise in that we talked about my role quite a lot because I'm, I'm sitting here but definitely really important to recognise like it's not my work that's under review yeah. and that's another thing that makes it very easy for me to be the one that's asking those difficult questions and to sort of to being open to challenge because it's not my work that's under the microscope and I think what was really really critical was the campaign lead who was leading the Brave campaign that you were evaluating and the head of campaigns as well who were the other two sort of core members of our evaluation internal team their engagement with this and their real spirit of also wanting to learn and wanting to improve and not being defensive that's much harder to do when it's your work that's, that's under the microscope and I, I really want to pay tribute there yeah. to my colleagues Sarah and Felix for their role in that because that was absolutely critical to us being able to learn as much as we did from this process yeah absolutely Something else that we'd like to come on to discuss with you is that straddling between evaluation and strategy. Both of these are in your role title. Mm. And I think one thing that we enjoyed very much is creating recommendations as part of the evaluation or Brave campaign evaluation, and then working a bit more to bring that into action. And what does that look like? So could you tell us a bit more about what that looks like in your role? How do you take evaluation recommendations into strategy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things to say, first of all, is that's probably one of the most challenging things and I think one of the questions you put in the brief was what are the barriers and blockages to actually putting learning into action and that is definitely definitely challenging I think it very much used to be the case that we would receive evaluations and it would be sort of like great job done that's the evaluation now quickly on to the next next. thing and that evaluation report would go in a drawer and, and, and that would be it I definitely do think that we have made real improvements in campaign evaluations and, and turning those into practice so I definitely think we do I will come on to give you some samples. I just want to sort of say up front that we had a report published just last week, an inquiry into racism at Amnesty UK. And one of the very key findings of that report was that we are absolutely not at the moment a learning organisation. And that really reflected back to us the real lack of organisational infrastructure and competence to learn. And talking about journey to transformation, I think Amnesty UK has obviously got a very long journey to a very significant transformation to take both from being an organisation that exhibits institutional racism to being an organisation that is anti-racist and from being an organisation that that struggles to learn to being one that really is a learning organisation. So I don't want to be here talking as if we're a shining example of putting learning into practice without acknowledging that context because that is where we are. But in, in terms of campaigns and campaign evaluations and putting learning into practice, I definitely have seen a shift over time and I think we are doing more of that. So prior to the Brave campaign evaluation, the last two external evaluations of campaigns that were done were actually done by the same evaluation team and they were actually able to, in the second one, reflect back to us that they had seen improvements from the previous evaluation that they had done. So that was actually really valuable that they were able to kind of see differences, particularly in terms of, I think they were terming it more robust ways of working in terms mm. of strategizing and, and, and monitoring and sort of campaign project management. So that's definitely shifted. I think with the Brave evaluation, some of the really important things that we're already sort of seeing changes with. So one of the very key findings around the evaluation objective that we had of investigating the extent to which the campaign had either challenged or reinforced systems of oppression and your evaluation was feeding back to us that we needed to look much more at the kind of history and cultural context of campaigns and how they intersect with those issues. So we've 
now got really quite recently an equality impact assessment, which is being introduced for the first time to how we plan our external work. And following the Brave evaluation, that template has actually been updated and revised to include looking at where history and culture and context sort of intersect with campaign issues. So that will be happening. That's there as an expectation. So that's really key. One of the other things that we're doing is obviously a lot of the recommendations that you made were around how we work with human rights defenders. And that was one of the key things that we wanted the investigation to look at, partly because obviously that was what the Brave campaign was focusing on was human rights defenders. And partly because in our new strategic plan as an organisation that that takes us to 2030, human rights defenders are a really key component. And we want to make sure that we are improving our work with defenders. So, and this was actually from the workshop that you ran for us. So this was really important to not just deliver a report and run away, but I think helping us to understand what the evaluation recommendations were saying and helping us to start that thinking process of what we're going to do about it and what that means for us. That really, I guess, acted as a catalyst for recognising a lot of the things that we want to be tackling with improving our ethical responsibilities, improving participation in how we work with rights holders and and human rights defenders. And that is one of the internal jargon, the enablers in our strategic (laughs) plan. So our new strategic plan has three goals, but it also has what we're calling enablers, which is how we want to work to deliver those goals or what we need in place to help us to do that. And one of those is around participation and ethical working with rights holders and defenders. But what we were able to identify through that workshop was really, we haven't actually got a dedicated work stream to look at that area of the plan and that enabler. So we've now been able to pull together a proposal to say, we really think we need a dedicated resource prioritised work stream, which will help us to work out how we're going to take this forward and to really bring that element of the the plan to life. And that proposal has been put together for for kind of senior consideration. So that's one more thing that we will hopefully be taking forward. It's cool to hear how... I know, I think I feel a bit emotional. <laughs> this is not the wind in your eye making making your eyes tear up. You're actually getting emotional. <laughs> but you're resourcing some of these things and I think that's often the key, right? People yeah. say, I'll take an action forward or we'll look at it in a month or two or whenever capacity allows, but actually putting resources next to the action and the plan. Yeah, or they'll say they're going to do something about it when we're in the room and then as soon as we leave, they're like, oh, they're gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really interesting to hear how that's being translated. Just going back to two things. One, I think it's really hard for all organizations to learn because one of the questions we often ask in the inception phase is how do you learn best? And that usually is the one that either takes the longest or it doesn't take the longest because people don't put anything in there and they're like, oh, we're not not entirely sure. So I think translating findings into learning, learning into action, that action into embedded practice is really, really hard. And so it doesn't surprise me that it's a challenge because I think all organizations find it challenging. I mean, if you ask an individual, how do you learn? You can talk about the ways in which you might consume information better, but in terms of really speaking to how a person learns, sometimes that's harder to articulate. Yeah. I think the second piece, in the interest of full disclosure, we have started recording an episode about all the racism reports that have come out, including the one that just got published on the 14th of June for FCDO. So we're pulling them all together and talking about them in a more critical way. I don't know in what order people are going to be hearing this (laughs) this or that. But having read Amnesties, I think there are lots of really interesting things to take forward. And Lauren and I, we've recorded part of it because we were having a really critical discussion about where we situate ourselves in relationship to Amnesty, having works Mm. together and what that looks like for us. I'm glad you mentioned it because I was like, oh, should we say anything? (laughs) 
yeah. that. <laughs> we didn't want to like bomb you with a sudden. <laughs> I think it's really important to not not mention it if, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. If I phrase that right, yeah, it's really important to be able to face up to that to acknowledge yeah. our failings if yeah. we are going to change. Absolutely, like you are again demonstrating that kind of refreshing approach to feedback to criticism. When we talk about failure with different organizations, the second I mention the F word, things start to retract and people start to recoil. What's the F word? Failure. (laughs) (laughs) Just checking. (laughs) I think people just start to, because of what it means in the bigger space, because the second you admit that you've done something wrong, well, what are your donors going to think? And what's the general public going to think? And what are all of these people going to think? And I think starting to break down this idea that just because we work for the social good and we've all got good, generous hearts doesn't mean that that equals perfection. It doesn't mean that we're not racist, misogynistic, we're not harboring bias. That's not true. And I think that's why it can be so challenging to have those conversations in these spaces because what one is doing or organizations are doing is saying, we're just an organization full of people. People bring their own garbage with them. And sometimes this is what it looks like and how it interacts with other people. So yeah, Mm. side tangent. (laughs) I'm wondering if you just need some catchy phrases like well-intentioned gatekeeper and attaching it to all your failures and learnings and then it kind of just gets embedded. Yeah, you know, to find a catchy catchphrase. (laughs) Catchphrases, mnemonic devices, songs. (laughs) Songs! Cheers. Imagine if you put a learning or a failure in a song. (laughs) That would be amazing. (laughs) Okay, that's the next project. Okay, I don't know how we got there. Sorry, But I liked that we got there. (laughs) It was a good thing to talk about. Translation into strategy, learning into strategy. I think that it's just nice to hear those practical ways that you're doing it. And I know that one of the exercises that we did towards the end is not this kind of like big ambition piece of like, right, we're going to completely transform and do this whole big thing, which is not really like me because I'm the big like disrupt everything, burn it down, build again. Lauren's more of the incrementalist. But that question of what can you do tomorrow was one that I was really quite focused on because I think sometimes when you get an evaluation, having been on both sides of it, when you get the recommendations and you're starting to formulate your response of what you're going to do, they all feel very grand. And it's like, okay, well, in three months, we'll do this. In next quarter, we'll do this. But actually just taking that one step of what are we going to do tomorrow just breaks it down and makes those recommendations much closer to how you might embed it into a strategy because now you're just thinking practically, how do you eat an elephant one <laughs> bite at a time? Which I think I may have even said in that workshop. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great report title. <laughs> I think that was really important with the workshop that you did with us on the recommendations was being able to look at what's the first step and then what follows and really break it down. That is really important. I think one of the other things, thinking about kind of challenges with putting evaluation into practice is actually often the number of recommendations that come out of evaluation yeah. and actually yeah. how overwhelming that can be almost. And it's right that they're there because they're all findings and all things that we do need to change but it's then sort of how do we actually turn that into change most valuably so our process with receiving evaluations is that we will put together a management response which looks at each of the recommendations and says do we accept that or not and very very largely we do and then what are we going to do about that and who is going to do that and, and when but that's an enormous document of all of these individual 
individual often kind of quite minutiae things that, that yeah. we will do I think one of the really helpful reflections we receive we have a, a campaign impact subcommittee to our board which is a sort of external grouping of the kind of experts in the campaign and, and impact space and one of the things that they kind of recommended to us when we were presenting to them the findings of the evaluation and our kind of response was maybe to sort of take a step back from the individual recommendations and try to think about what are the key things you're taking from this what is it telling you as a whole so not just the specifics but actually what are you taking from this in terms of direction and kind of where you think that needs to change so that's also something which I'm not going to take credit for that's the piece that the the head of campaigns is leading on but really taking a step back and thinking as a whole what does this tell us and try and give it a bit more directional rather than just the specifics and look at how that will change and I think that's actually something very similar to what you also did with the last campaign evaluation before this one that we did which sparked or at least made a very large contribution to a thought process about the direction of our campaigns and so as well as the individual kind of management response to each of the recommendations he sort of wrote a paper about the future of campaigning in Amnesty UK and I think a lot of that you can really see influencing our entire organisational strategic plan now so things around the longer term timeframes, thinking about root causes, systemic change, participation being such a key strand as well. That's a bit more from the step back and look at the totality of what that's telling us. So I think that might be helpful as well. The way that you all clustered those findings and how they then were kind of formulated for the kind of subsequent processes that follow is actually a lesson that I took away in how we group and cluster our findings to make them a bit more manageable because we try to cluster them as part of the questions in the evaluation or in the review as we're being given them but that may not necessarily be the way that it makes sense when you try and like convert that into practice so when you go findings here's what you should do moving forward. All the things that you should do moving forward, maybe they all sit in your design piece or a strategy piece or an ethics piece. So we gave you a long list of things because we found a lot of really interesting (laughs) stuff. There were a lot of recommendations. (laughs) But some of it was improve upon this. Some of it was like, this is great, keep doing that. It wasn't necessarily like everything was awful. It was just there were a lot of really interesting and rich findings that then we could translate into stuff that we recommended. But how you group them and cluster them in a way that's much more manageable for people is a big takeaway for me on that piece because we just give people big long lists of things and say, here's what we think you should do with it. And then they decide how they want us to continue to engage in that process and support them as we go along. But we could be doing a much better job of making it make sense and integrating it in different parts of the business. So true. We could also put them into song. (laughs) Yes. Maybe it's the recommendation. Spoken word. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Slam poetry. And people can like listen when they're falling asleep. <laughs> Sometimes I listen to these things called sleep casts. Shout out to Headspace for Rainy Day Antiques. So it's basically a story and it changes all the time and it's a person reading and you can just hear the sound of the rain and them looking around the antique shop. So I could do a version of Rainy Day Antiques, but then have all the recommendations. <laughs> and they're picking up a book. The title of the book is Ways That You Can Engage With your stakeholders. <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> this is one of the things that we really appreciated and loved about working with you was the kind of the creativity and what you what you kind of provided us with. And like in all seriousness, that really helped. So I think the video and the podcast episodes you you made for us and Nick's talking much more discursively, kind of about the findings and what you took from that 
that really helped more people to engage with what you were saying in a different way to just a sort of long written report. So that was really key. I think also what you're saying about those kind of groupings of recommendations, I think that's the really key piece between evaluation into strategy was like when the recommendations come back, it's very much in line with what we wanted to find out about this campaign that has happened. But then actually to put that into practice, we're not going to run that specific campaign again. If we were, we would do all of those things in that way, perhaps the same or differently sort of according to those recommendations, but we won't be doing that exact same thing again. So it's more about thinking what we are going to do in future and how we can take what we've learned from that experience into what we're going to do next. I wonder if there's a piece here also in terms of the challenge of not just looking at a recent evaluation that was done, but, you know, maybe over the past five years, you could have had a few. How do you check in on that, bring them together and say, like, you know, over the past five evaluations, these things have been consistently brought up or not? meta-evaluation. Yeah. And and, and do you (laughs) assess, you know, like, are the same things coming up? Have we addressed this? And therefore, it's not coming up in the next campaign Mm. and use that as a bit of a baseline check-in. And so in some ways, I think while evaluations give you findings and recommendations into strategy, they also give you the baseline, like here's where we were in time. Mm. And then as we move through the strategy, we can check back at that point. As part of that process of seeing where you're going, I do think that the work that we did with you all was great because there was flexibility in the things that we could produce for people. So going back to this idea of like creativity or what we want to do is stuff that's fun and interesting and engaging for people because some people learn. So going back to the ways that people learn, some people learn through a 35 page report, but not everybody learns that way. So finding different ways that people can interact with what happened, I think is something that's really, really important. We've written like long reports and then you'd want to know how it's going to interact with the strategy and you get this feeling that the people who are devising or uh, shepherding the strategy haven't read the whole thing. <laughs> so, And I think that that's a useful piece because it wasn't just a report. There was an animation, there were a couple of podcasts, but also there was us being invited into those spaces where some of the thinking was happening so that we can just give some insight from what our perspective was and the things that we found in some of the detail to drop that into your thinking and then leave it there. Because our job isn't to, to shape everything to the image that we've portrayed or perceived through the report, but just to give some insights which help direct things. And I think it is surprisingly hard to get organizations off of the idea that the report is the final Mm -hmm. thing. And we're often saying, okay, but if we do a report this way, can we think about video? Can we think about these different ways that people might hear and consume the information easier? Because we want it to have longevity and directionality, but it won't happen if we only look at one way. Here's the report. Done. Goodbye. Yeah, maybe shout out to Ruth's dissemination plan because we did get to speak to lots of groups as well and different kinds of groups across the organization, Mm -hmm. which was really unique in our experiences with clients. Absolutely. I mean, I can only speak for us, but I think a lot of consultants who come in and do this kind of work would want that because Mm -hmm. I don't think that we do this just to write reports and then leave. Mm -hmm. I think we do it, one, because it's an opportunity for us to be led by, well, I mean, I guess this may be just us, but... We can be led by our values. We can make choices about the way that we want to work. We can be much more confrontational around change and disrupt change because you're paying us a lot of money to get at you. So (laughs) that legitimizes all of our thoughts. (laughs) I think that was definitely really important was actually you were also very clear from the beginning that what you wanted to do was to be engaging with all the key stakeholders and decision makers. And you were very clear who are the people who will have the, the, the power 
the scope to implement the changes that we're recommending at the end and how do we make sure that they're engaged in in understanding how we're going about this evaluation what we're finding what that's telling us so that we're not just leaving the report and going away and I think that was really really key to do that thinking through of looking to how we embed that change and planning that all the way through the evaluation yeah the questions you put to us and the approach that you took for that was really key and those post-delivery pieces of that dissemination engagement and the workshops around the recommendations to help us to do that thinking piece and that's definitely an experience we've had with other consultants as well as wanting to go beyond the report and supporting us because you want to make sure that this has an impact that this does some change you haven't written it for nothing so I think that is really important yeah sorry we just sound like a was that a big rat or something I think it was a mole (laughs) I was like that's a massive thing you You were much more obvious than I was because I saw one right over your shoulder and I was like I do also think it's somewhere where the luxury of my role, as we keep calling it, is like just having that added capacity to be able to plan beyond the report itself. It is important because it takes time and capacity. And yeah, yeah, that's difficult to do as a campaigner as well. Can we call it a necessary luxury? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I feel like it's a necessary luxury. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good shout. Stop seeing it as an extra thing. It's necessary. Yeah, Yeah. you need it. And I think in summary, that's going to be one of the key takeaways for me is Ruth's role, the capacity, the time to deliver meaningful and ethical evaluations. It just has to be there. There cannot be compromise. And I think going back to the beginning, Ruth, you're sort of talking about the technical element. The technical has to be on balance with the ethical sometimes that's lost. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost in the mind that the technical M&E component is probably the least important piece of it. Because for me, when I get down to it, what we're doing is asking people questions about how they feel. And I feel like this is a component of it that's really about connecting. Like there obviously is a technical rigor that you want and generalizability across the way that you're conducting an evaluation. But there's also a part that's like, are we doing the right things by everyone to the best of our ability? Are we caring about them and their time and their safety? And those are the human parts of it. And the other thing I wanted to say that just popped into my mind is the role of having senior sponsors. Because in some of the work that we do, we don't always have a senior sponsor who's the owner or the holder of it. And sometimes it's that translation. So one of the questions that we started asking our clients is how open is your organization to hearing about ways in which you may have been missing the mark? And the project team is always like, yeah, tell us everything. They're really close to what's going on. So they already know that things are chaotic and But what about beyond that? How open is your organization to hearing confronting, challenging feedback? And I think by having a senior sponsor as part of the evaluation team, that really meant that all of the conversation they were having, nobody was surprised when we were like, okay, here's things that are starting to come up. And the thinking could germinate for people in like decision-making spaces about what could happen. So I think having a senior sponsor part of that project team is another really key thing for me. Definitely. I hadn't realised that wasn't kind of standard practice, I guess. So that's one of the things for having worked at Amnesty for as long as I have is that I have very little experience anywhere else. So <laughs> well, we can tell that, that was unique. That was <laughs> but yeah, I do think that, that is really key to buying into what's being presented back and 
translating that into practice and the person, the people in those roles being really open to that. I think yeah. that, that kind of personal piece is really important. I can tell you that's unique. And I can also tell you that steering committees or reference groups are also unique. We were often trying to create them. We're like, look, here's why it's useful to have this group of people. It's we're good creating for us. A movement. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, largely encouraged by Amnesty. It's yeah, a movement yeah. building piece here about getting steering committees on evaluations. We found that really helpful to have a group of people to bounce ideas off of, to kind of help us understand things. It wasn't the only source of knowledge, but it was an important pool. But we're constantly like, you know, it'd be great if we had a reference group. And they're like, but that's us. And I'm like, no, but you're the project team. Like, we need somebody else to yeah. talk to about this stuff. And then the same pushbacks of time. People are not around. Yeah. Who could it be? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's setting them up is not a given at all. And I do think that that is a really important part to the learning piece. That's the ownership piece. That's the familiarity. That's the getting comfortable with all the sons trying to do it. So I think that's also unique. I think another unique thing is just the unique spirit of how the team came together with all of those things of non-defensiveness, humility, willingness to learn, openness to change, and that spirit between all of us of challenging each other in a way that was depersonalized, collegial, fun. Well, we had some laughs. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think on the, the steering group piece, thinking about the composition of that steering group as well, I mean, we touched on that kind of at the beginning in terms of the, the conversation about whether rights holders, human rights defenders should be part of that steering group or not, and the decision that that could be tokenistic at that point, but the ambition for the future. And that just reminds me of one thing that I think was significant in terms of the other ethical questions that arise. So what we did decide at that point was that what would be appropriate to do would be to ask a partner organisation to be part of the steering group because we had had more of a close working relationship throughout the project and that felt like something that was more of an appropriate ask. And that was absolutely invaluable to have that different perspective and additional expertise brought in. Because I think one of the other kind of ethical dilemmas with evaluations is who gets to see what comes out of this evaluation. So who sees the results of that? And we've had a mixed approach in the past, but I think certainly the last evaluation that I worked on was an entirely internal evaluation kind of document. And so we had the question around with this evaluation, should it be an internal document or should it be externally published? And that's the key ethical question. You know, one of our evaluation principles is around transparency, but that always has to be balanced with confidentiality and ethical considerations around safety for those involved. And I think when we were initially having those discussions in the steering group space, because of the people who we were wanting to participate and the human rights defenders and those who who might be at risk, my instinct was, I guess, a bit more protectionist and a bit more, there'll be more risks involved if this is a public document be kind of safer if it feels like it's something that only Amnesty is going to see. And then the partner on the steering group really rightly kind of challenged us there. And I think that was another like well-meaning gatekeeper moment, although we didn't didn't have that phrase at that point. And was really saying for human rights defenders who might be participating and contributing to this evaluation, it will be really important for them to be able to see that contribution. Otherwise, it's very extractive. Like they need to see what it is that they contributed to. But also, I think really importantly and interestingly, that this is actually something that 
other human rights defenders or other partners may consider working with us in the future. If that's available publicly, they will be able to see what the experience of working with Amnesty might be like and also what you have recommended to us about improving that. So what can they expect from us? And that's a way of holding us to account in future. And I think that was a really, really important challenge. So obviously meant that there was a lot more that needed to be thought through in terms of the risk assessment and all of the conversations that that we talked with you about having with people participating around how they would be represented and you built in that really important time for people to be able to actually look at how they were represented in the report. I guess additional complications because people had the choice to be named or anonymous or semi-anonymized but being able to revisit that decision on each individual basis once they knew what the totality looked like because it might be very different to say oh I'm happy to be named or sort of semi-anonymous if you think hundreds of other people are doing the same thing but actually then if you're the only person in a report where that applies to (laughs) that gives you a whole different level of visibility so all of that thought process needed more thought it needed more time it needed more care it was more complicated than have we just said well we'll just keep it internal but it was really really right that we tried to put the time and the thought and the effort into tackling that because that was the right thing to do to publish it so I'm really glad that we have been able to do that through that process we also learned that that discussion was an ongoing discussion with the rights holders and stakeholders involved Mm. in the evaluation it wasn't a one-time like let's discuss the complexity of what transparency looks like it was no let's continue the conversation until the point in which it's published yeah. and I think that was a really great learning point for me at least in yeah, terms absolutely. of it can't just be like a one two time thing again the evolving context in which people live mean that things could change I mean it's a type of engagement that I want everyone to be doing but it seems quite difficult so we're often the ones who are leading that okay we're going to talk to you once and then we're going to just confirm that you're happy with this so we take an informed consent approach when we're interacting with stakeholders of an evaluation a learning review whatever but then where we can in some cases we can't depending on the types of groups that we're interviewing we come back later and say okay now that you've had a bit of time you've thought about it what does this look like and I think keeping that engagement and for Amnesty maintaining that level of interaction is a deep level of respect and care not that other organizations don't respect or care for this (laughs) but But there is taking it another step further of just making sure throughout that process that people are comfortable. Because again, we often just get these lists of people and some of whom there probably should be a lot more ethical care taken in our interaction with them and more shepherding and stewarding by the organizations to make sure that that process, I think we take a very ethical approach, but they don't know that. (laughs) And I think that's just a really good way of like interacting with people. And this being a good example of just maintaining that contact and saying, okay, now we're at the point where it's going to be public how are we still feeling about things and taking a moment there the other thing i think that was good about the approach it's a double benefit because the responses were anonymous to you mm. you being amnesty not just yeah. you. <laughs> and i think that that created another layer of safety for people to i mean obviously they know that you all paid us but mm. if we are good enough at that point of our job of really reinforcing the space that their feedback is coming in then you're getting a lot more candor you're getting a lot more honesty feedback, we can be perceived as much more independent than maybe we would be perceived if people know that you're going to have access to their responses. Another really interesting kind of ethical dimension of of evaluations is I think having an external evaluation so that it's you asking questions and and not directly the people that they've worked with with Amnesty, that's really key. But it's also not that simple. Like there's a lot (laughs) of complexity there because I mean, as you said, the people that you're talking to know that Amnesty is paying you and they know that we don't have access to who has said what exactly 
but I mean a lot of the conversations we had were around the fact that there's only a limited pool of people that we have put you in touch with and also we have been the ones to set up that contact so the stakeholders do know that we know that you've talked to them if yeah. you see what I mean yeah. so it was how do we anonymizing is not as simple as just like not putting somebody's name on something there are so many ways that we could identify people from what they had said that you needed to be really really careful to make sure that anything that identified yeah. somebody was removed so that we weren't able to tell who had said what but I think you know we do have to be cognizant of the fact that and we have to be honest with those stakeholders in the approach that we make to them that we will know who the evaluators have talked to mm. and there will only be a limited number of people who could give the same sort of input so just be honest about the limits of true anonymity or, or not and I think that's probably another question for the future is how do we get that balance between like we're the people who have the contact with those rights holders and, yeah. and stakeholders and are able to kind of set up those relationships but also enabling people to input without being put in touch by us so that it is yeah. a bit more at a distance I think that's another thorny challenge yeah well we were we've been doing a little bit of research on this beneficiary feedback mm. model and there's an organization that we came across I cannot now remember the name do you remember we listened to another podcast and they were talking about it and it's basically a completely independent third party and people are given a number an email a number of different ways to contact this sort of third party in any language that they want and they bank and pool all of that feedback so you don't know who's given the feedback and they'll just give you a summary of what people have said except in the event that a person has said I want to be identified because I need follow-up support but then they act as this intermediary between the organization and that person but it could be beneficiaries non-beneficiaries could be anybody obviously there's some challenges with that because then how do you target an approach if you're not entirely sure so there is some utility of having context and understanding what that looks like. But it's something that I, I'm still trying to work out how I think this could work in a way that's supportive of an evaluation space. I haven't yet come to the idea. I mean, if you have the idea, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. I mean, it comes back a little bit to how much you want to understand Amnesty's or any organization's contribution to something. Because I think that's the tension. Do you want to understand that you contributed to a change or do you just care that in the space that there's some kind of change? Yeah, that's the key bit. We actually did have this conversation shortly after we wrapped up with you all. So I was like, how would you do this if the stakeholders are human rights defenders? Would you just have this company like contact all of them so that the sheer number of people, all the human rights defenders, known human rights defenders on the planet, and then you know that that's like your group of people. But then your contribution beats yes is one. But then I think you, sorry, <laughs> we're going off topic. <laughs> but then I, th I think you do something like that where you choose a group of people, let's say human rights defenders or activists, you interview everybody, and then you work backwards to determine, okay, Amnesty worked in this country and this country and not this country, therefore contribution could be here and then you look at a timeline yeah. and then you look at who else was doing stuff in that country yeah. and so you work backwards to determine it. Who worked in that country, but also who benefited from certain things. Yeah, yeah. And then you figure out who all did those certain things. Yes, exactly. So you build yeah. a timeline. Yeah. This is why we have a podcast. <laughs> I mean, that sounds amazing. <laughs> all right. That's our next venture. <laughs> a follow-on project. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we could chat for hours. Yes. But, you know. Very easily. <laughs> I am so happy that you're here. And yeah. I think that it's a really unique dynamic. The conversation that Lauren and I often have is when we get along really well with clients and we feel like it's a really supportive learning space, how we then maintain objectivity. I think that that's a good 
problem to have, really, because what we found with you all was a really supportive learning environment and one that we could really explore what the evaluation could be, the directions that it could go. So yeah, thank you and to the team for all of that stuff. We learned so much. We learned a lot. And that's it from each other. And I feel like that was the beauty of it. We weren't coming in there saying, here's this technical methodology, you know. Easy. (laughs) (laughs) That Tia created. It was very much like this learning process and that for me was totally key. Yeah, thank you, Ruth. (laughs) <laughs> Likewise. I mean, it was a joy and a pleasure to work with you both. And it's lovely to be sitting here with you now in person. But it was a huge learning experience. And I mean that both in terms of obviously what you were able to present back to us about the Brave campaign and all of the learning that we have taken from that for our future campaigns and work with human rights defenders, which is hugely valuable. But it was also very much a learning experience in terms of evaluation. So the question that we've been talking about this morning, the methodology, the very technical <laughs> methodology of qualitative comparative analysis, which is definitely a new one to me but I think that was one of the things we really appreciated about your approach as well was that you really were keen to help us to understand and to learn so producing a learning product specifically to help us understand what qualitative comparative analysis is and how that works for this campaign and how it can tell us something different about this campaign than other methodology like that was amazing I've definitely from working with you both just really learned an enormous amount which will help me I hope to do my job better in future so thank you I think we're all doing our jobs better for having known each other <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'm Gia. I'm Lauren. And I'm Ruth. And this has been the Journey to Transformation, a Bournemouth edition. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Prowse Canal.